Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. I am so excited and grateful that Spoonful of Sugar is back for season three. If you have been tuning into Spoonful of Sugar since season one or two, welcome back and thank you so much for your ongoing support. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I thought I'd start by giving a little introduction and then we'll get into the main content of the episode. My name is Ria Moherker and I am a radiation oncology resident currently, but Spoonful of Sugar is actually a project that I started as a fourth year student in medical school. I really just wanted to create a convenient, easily accessible way for students to review material so that they could take care of basic human needs, exercise, cooking, cleaning, driving to see loved ones, without feeling guilty about being away from the books. When I started, my episodes were really entirely focused just towards reviewing important medical topics at the level of USMLE Step 1. But based on popular demand, last season, I started the Clinical Concept Series, which includes more clinically oriented material at the slightly higher level of USMLE Step 2. But board exams aside, my true goal with each episode is to take knowledge out of textbooks and help you make connections so that as you review each topic through our podcast episodes, you can solidify your memory by emphasizing your understanding of the topics. It's really easy to look up facts in the future if you forget little things, but I really think that if we try to focus on understanding the why behind everything in medicine, we can make inferences and clinical connections that are going to help us no matter which specialty we pursue. Over the last two seasons, I've been really grateful to work with numerous talented medical students who have hosted episodes on topics ranging from stroke to reproductive physiology. This year, we will also be inviting some residents to actually share more clinically oriented reviews on various topics. If you are a medical student who has taken step one or a resident physician who's interested in just sharing some knowledge and wisdom with the rest of the medical community, please let me know if you're interested in recording a podcast episode for Spoonful of Sugar. We would really love to have you on board. I'd encourage anyone who's interested to check out our team page on spoonfulofsugar.org and reach out to us via contact at spoonfulofsugar.org. Find us on Instagram and send us a message or you know, contact us through our website at spoonfulofsugar.org. So enough about the podcast. I'm now going to kick off season three of Spoonful of Sugar with an episode on a very popularly demanded topic of heart sounds. We're going to review the basic heart sounds, various types of gallops, as well as murmurs, and try to give you some tips so that you are able to answer board questions on these topics, as well as understand the physiology behind various murmurs and gallops so that you can understand what's going on in your patient when you hear these heart sounds. I get it, guys. Heart murmurs were really, really hard for me as well, and it took a lot of practice, as well as kind of reading and trying to understand exactly what was going on in the heart to get a handle of the topic. Unfortunately, with this podcast, I do not have the capability to play the actual heart sounds the way that you might hear on board exams. What I'm going to do is try to review some tips on how to go about listening to the heart sounds 
what exactly to listen for in the audio and what to look for in the patient's history as well. So let's start with the normal heart sounds. What are the normal heart sounds and what do they represent? Like what should you hear when you put a stethoscope on someone's chest? We hear S1 and S2, right? And what do they represent? Like what is happening when you hear S1 or S2? It represents closing of the valves in the heart. And which valves are closing in S1? So this is the mitral and the tricuspid. And which valves are closing in S2? So this is the aortic and pulmonic, okay? And from here, I'm only going to refer to the mitral and aortic valves. Just remember that the tricuspid valve is going to follow mostly whatever the mitral valve does. The pulmonic valve is going to follow mostly whatever the aortic valve does. So think about what happens in between S1 and S2. So S1, the mitral valve closes. The ventricles start pumping blood to the body. And what is that called when the ventricles are actively pumping blood to the body? It's systole, right? That's when the heart is actively contracting. And what happens between S2 and S1? So S2, the aortic valve closes, then the ventricles start to passively fill with blood. And what's that phase of the cardiac cycle called? Diastole, right? So which is longer, systole or diastole? Where do our hearts spend more time? Diastole. It's kind of nice if you think about it, isn't it? Our hearts spend most of their time relaxing. I wish I spent most of my time relaxing also. But diastole is when the heart is relaxing. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? It takes longer for the heart to passively fill with blood than to actively pump because those muscles are strong and they don't require a lot of time to effectively pump the blood. This is also an important concept to remember when you're calculating mean arterial pressure or MAP. Do you remember the formula to calculate MAP? So mean arterial pressure is one-third times the systolic blood pressure plus two-thirds times the diastolic blood pressure, and that's the formula to calculate MAP. So really, the heart spends two-thirds of its time in diastole and only one-third of its time in systole. So if you think about an example, normal blood pressure is about 120 over 80. So one-thirds times 120 plus two-thirds times 80. If you calculate that out, you'll get something around 93.3. Remembering that diastole is longer than systole is key to remember when you're listening to heart sounds. But it can still be hard to figure out S1 versus S2 when they play that audio heartbeat in a test question. So my first trick for you guys to help you figure out which is S1 and which is S2 when you're listening to heart sounds is to tap it out. And what I mean by that, when I was taking the questions and I heard this heart sound, ba 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 I would literally put my finger on the desk and tap it out like ba ba and the reason it's important to do that is because the audio might not always start with S1. It might sound like something like ba, 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 ba. But when you tap it out, I think it was easier for me to tell which is S1 and which is S2. 
And once you orient yourself to the heart sounds and you figure out which is S1, which is S2, it's much easier to figure out any extra heart sounds, which are also called gallops or murmurs, okay? So quick recap here. What happens right after S1? Systole. So a murmur that you hear right after S1 is going to be a systolic heart murmur. And what phase of the heart cycle happens after S2? Diastole. So the murmur here is diastolic. And the time after S2 is longer than the time between S1 and S2. So now that we have our bearings within the heart cycle, let's tackle some gallops. There's really only two gallops that you really need to recognize, right? S3 and S4. When does S3 happen? It happens at the beginning of diastole. So right after you hear S2, you'll hear an S3 sound. And when does S4 happen? S4 actually happens towards the end of diastole. So it happens right before S1, and it's almost easier to group it with S1 because it happens so close to S1. And what does each represent? What does the S3, let's start with that. What does S3 represent? So S3 happens when there's ventricular filling from increased atrial pressure and increased flow rates. When might we get increased volume in the heart, causing increased atrial pressure and just increased flow through the heart? Think about a condition that causes you to have extra fluid all over the body. Heart failure, right? S3 happens commonly in patients with heart failure. I think of S3 literally as just blood sloshing around the ventricle due to dilated cardiomyopathy, aka heart failure. S3 happens right at the beginning of diastole, so as soon as the aortic valve closes and the ventricles start to fill. Ba-ba-ba, 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 ba-ba-ba. It sounds something like that, okay? It happens that ba-ba-ba, that third sound, that third beat, that's S3. We're going to listen to what my rendition of S4 sounds like in a second, but I want you to just think about how S3, the sound is so close to S2, and S3 almost sounds evenly spaced, okay? Let's talk about S4 next. What does S4 represent? So S4, you often hear the term atrial kick. It's kind of funny in my mind. S4 happens when the ventricle is non-compliant, okay? So it's kind of the opposite of what's happening in S3. In S4, the vent ventricle wall is very stiff, and so the atria have to kind of contract more, and I think of it as literally kicking blood into the left ventricle. So S4 is also caused by blood hitting the ventricular wall, but it happens later when the atria have no choice but to kind of shove it into the ventricle as a last resort. So S4 is a stiff ventricle, okay? It's, think of restrictive cardiomyopathy, whereas S3 is more heart failure, dilated cardiomyopathy. So S4, remember we said, happens closer to the end of diastole, kind of right before S1. Ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba. I think that S4 sounds less evenly spaced out. It almost sounds a little bit more syncopated compared to S3. Now, some people will remember the word Kentucky for S3. Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky. 
And for S4, they remember Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. Personally, that never worked for me. I always get a hang of the, you know, I always orient myself to the heart sounds by tapping my finger, trying to figure out where is S1, where is S2. And from there, I'm able to figure out where S3 or S4, if they are happening, where they are. Um, So I would encourage you to try and practice it that way if nothing else has been working for you. I think that eventually with practice, you do get better at recognizing the heart sounds. And I think I got much better at it actually by listening to patients during my third year rotations. So, you know, with practice, you will get it, but you just have to find a way that works for you. And you have to figure out how to orient yourself to the heart sounds. Let's move on now to the heart murmurs. And everyone can calm down because I am not going to attempt to vocalize these with crescendos and decrescendos. What I will do, however, is review which murmurs are systolic, which murmurs are diastolic, and then I'll go through some of the commonly used descriptions and sort of buzzwords that are used in question stems so that you can identify these. So when I was in med school, there were a few cardiology fellows who came over once and gave us a review on murmurs. And they shared with us one of my favorite mnemonics ever that I'll pass along to you. I don't know if you've heard this before, but the mnemonic is Mr. Ass and D Arms. Okay, so Mr. Ass is M-R-A-S-S. That last S stands for systolic, okay? And then Mr. and A-S are M-R or mitral regurgitation and AS, or aortic stenosis. So Mr. Ass tells you that mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis are systolic murmurs. D-arms are the diastolic murmurs. So the D stands for diastolic, AR is aortic regurgitation, and MS is mitral stenosis. So that the diastolic murmurs in D-arms are aortic regurgitation and mitral stenosis. If you can use this mnemonic or whatever way to remember that mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis are systolic murmurs and aortic regurgitation and mitral stenosis are diastolic murmurs, that is half the battle. And then tricuspid and pulmonic murmurs are much more rarely tested on, but just remember that tricuspid usually does whatever mitral does, pulmonic does whatever aortic does. The next part of the battle is to think about where the murmur is heard, okay? Because they often give you this clue. So I don't know if you've heard of the mnemonic APTM. It's a way to remember which heart valve is located where relative to the chest. So APTM is abbreviated, um, it's an abbreviation for all physicians take money or apartment M, whatever you do. Um, The order is APTM, and A is the aortic valve on the right upper sternal border. P is the pulmonic valve on the left upper sternal border. T is the tricuspid valve over the left lower sternal border. And M is the mitral valve, which is in the mid-axillary line. And these locations just represent where the murmurs are best heard, And oftentimes question stems will describe a murmur and then say where it is best heard. So it's another clue to help you figure out what murmur they're talking about. 
So just remember, you know, right upper sternal border is aortic and then the mitral is in the mid-axillary line. Those are the two that I would encourage you to remember. And sometimes instead of saying upper sternal border or lower sternal border, they'll say between the second and third ribs or between the fifth and sixth ribs. So these are just clues to help you realize where each murmur is heard. And if you pay attention to that clue in the question stem along with everything else, you can sometimes piece together what they're talking about. The next clue that they might give you is telling you where the murmur radiates. Do you guys know where aortic murmurs usually radiate? They go to the carotids, and that makes sense, right? The aorta is pumping blood out everywhere to the body, so it's just moving forward. It goes to the carotids. And where do mitral murmurs radiate? They radiate to the axilla, right? Specifically the left axilla because the apex of the heart is located in the left axilla. Um, and I think this is just relative to the proximity. The apex of the heart is close to the left axilla. So that's another clue to kind of pay attention to, to help you figure out which murmur they're talking about. So now let me describe some murmurs for you and you let me know what they are, okay? You know, telepathically. Let's start out with a crescendo, decrescendo, systolic murmur, which is best heard at the right upper sternal border, loudest at the base of the heart, and it radiates to the carotids. What murmur might this be? So this is aortic stenosis, right? It's kind of a culmination of everything we discussed. The right upper sternal border is where aortic murmurs are heard best. It's systolic, so if you're thinking an aortic murmur that's systolic, you're thinking about Mr. Ass and aortic stenosis as part of that mnemonic. It's at the base of the heart because that's where the valves of the, you know, that's where the aorta exits the heart and that's where the aortic valve is radiating to the carotids. And then finally, it has that crescendo, decrescendo sound. That's a buzzword for aortic stenosis, crescendo, decrescendo. And can you think of a physical exam finding that you might find in a patient with aortic stenosis? This might be kind of a read my mind question, but the exam finding is specifically related to the patient's pulse. So the answer is pulsus parvus etardus. That means a pulse that's weak and delayed, okay? And that makes sense, right? Because blood is trying to push through the narrow aortic valve and so your pulses are weak and slow because the valve is kind of blocking the blood from getting out to the body. So aortic stenosis, in summary, systolic, heard at the right upper sternal border, crescendo, decrescendo. Now what if I described a holosystolic, high-pitched blowing murmur that's best heard at the apex of the heart or the mid-axillary line and it radiates to the axilla? So this is mitral regurgitation. For mitral regurgitation, I want you to remember high-pitched blowing murmur. High-pitched blowing murmur is actually associated with any kind of regurgitation. Just think of blood getting sucked backwards and it makes like a high-pitched whistling noise. So mitral regurgitation is a holosystolic, high-pitched blowing murmur best heard at the mid-axillary line. Let's move on now to a high-pitched, blowing, early diastolic decrescendo murmur. 
So now we're in a diastolic murmur, decrescendo, and it's also high-pitched and blowing. And remember what I just said, regurgitation tends to cause high-pitched blowing. So what might this murmur be? This is aortic regurgitation, okay? So high-pitched blowing regurgitation, and it's a diastolic murmur. What are some physical exam findings that might be associated with aortic regurgitation? So a hyperdynamic pulse or a wide pulse pressure, and wide pulse pressure is just when systolic, there's a big difference between your systolic pressure and your diastolic pressure. For example, 120 over 80, the pulse pressure is much lower than a patient with a blood pressure of 140 over 60. And this pulse is wide or hyperdynamic because blood is shooting out and then it's regurgitating back in through that leaky valve. So you get a hyperdynamic pulse. And there's another physical exam finding. Anybody know? So head bobbing. It's actually a result of this very wide blood pressure. So blood flows backwards from the head and it can make patients dizzy or lightheaded. Anyone know another name for the head bobbing sign? It's named after a person. De Musset sign. Um, Or I guess De Musset. It's named after a French poet who actually had this condition. And I promise you, I didn't just know that. I found it on Google, so I thought I'd throw that fun fact in. But it's named after a person. Let's go back on track, though. Just remember, aortic regurgitation is an early diastolic decrescendo, high-pitched blowing murmur, and it can cause a hyperdynamic or wide pulse pressure, and head bobbing can happen as a result. The last main murmur I want to talk about is a murmur that's described as an opening snap followed by a delayed rumbling in mid to late diastole. What's that? Mitral stenosis, you might have gotten that by process of elimination, but the mitral stenosis opening snap is due to an abrupt halt in leaflet motion during diastole. Which condition is often associated with mitral stenosis on board exams? I'll give you a hint. It's infectious. So rheumatic fever, right? Mitral stenosis can be a long-term complication of rheumatic fever. Now, what if someone with mitral stenosis later in their life develops hoarseness? How might you explain that? So chronic mitral stenosis can actually lead to left atrial dilation, right? Because the atrium is constantly contracting against the stenotic valve. This can cause compression of the left recurrent laryngeal nerve and lead to hoarseness. It can also compress on the esophagus, which is very close to the left atrium, and it can cause dysphagia. So those were kind of the main murmurs. We covered Mr. Ass and D-arms. And honestly, just knowing those mnemonics as well as where the heart sounds are heard best helped me answer a lot of questions correctly about murmurs. Now, there's some additional murmurs that I think you should be familiar with that can happen in children or even babies. So let's go through those now. What if I describe to you a continuous machine-like murmur, which is best heard at the left infraclavicular area? What might you think of? So here I'm going for patent ductus arteriosus, abbreviated PDA. 
So remember where the PDA comes from, okay? It's a remnant of the fetal circulation, which is totally different. In the fetus, oxygenated blood comes to the umbilical artery from the placenta, and the ductus arteriosus is this connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta that's supposed to shunt blood away from the lungs and to the systemic circulation. Fetus lungs aren't breathing, so there's no point in bringing fetus blood to the lungs, right? But after birth, when the baby breathes, it's supposed to close. If it does not, however, and this murmur happens, it's a continuous machine-like murmur. What are some physical exam findings that are associated with PDA? Bounding peripheral pulses, and sometimes they might even describe a palpable thrill over the left upper sternal border. Now, what if I describe a holosystolic, harsh-sounding murmur that does not radiate loudest at the left sternal border? So here I'm going for ventricular septal defect, okay? Every time the ventricle contracts, there's a defect in the interventricular septum, and so blood is just gushing into the right ventricle. And you can imagine that sounds like a pretty harsh situation, which is how I remember that ventricular septal defect is a holosystolic, harsh-sounding murmur. And then finally, this murmur is not necessarily just in babies or children. You also hear it in adults all the time. A late systolic crescendo murmur with a mid-systolic click that's best heard over the apex of the heart. Any idea what I'm talking about here? That click might have given it away. I'm going for mitral valve prolapse. So mitral valve prolapse is usually a benign condition. Sometimes it can happen in patients with connective tissue diseases like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos. And do you guys know what causes that mid-systolic click? It's actually from tensing of the chordae tendineae. You know, those things that connect the mitral valve to the papillary muscles in the heart. That's the mid-systolic click for mitral valve prolapse. Excellent. So let's move on now to the last part of this review. Sometimes you might get asked which types of murmurs are improved or worsened by certain maneuvers that affect preload or afterload. And this, I think, was the most challenging part of murmurs to learn. And what I'm thinking of now as I'm introducing this topic is that there is one murmur which we did not talk about yet, and that is hokum or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Do you guys remember where in the heart cycle it's heard, systole or diastole? It's a systolic murmur. It's described as a high-pitched crescendo, decrescendo, mid-systolic murmur, best heard at the left lower sternal border. So what is hokum? How would you explain it to a layperson? So hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, it's all in the name, okay? It is hypertrophy of the heart, but it's a genetic condition and it unevenly causes hypertrophy of the inter interventricular septum. So it kind of it favors the interventricular septum and the heart is not symmetrically hypertrophic. It's uneven. And that hypertrophy specifically of the septum can actually block the aortic outlet and make it harder to pump blood out through the aortic valve. Now, this is important to understand because you need to 
use that knowledge to understand what happens to murmurs when there's a change in preload. So which maneuvers decrease your preload? Do you guys know? Can you think of any? So a simple one is just standing up really quickly, right? That can make you orthostatic and you can get orthostatic hypotension. That decreases your preload. Another common one is Valsalva, where there's pressure on the carotids and that triggers your baroreceptors and then it causes the vessels to relax and the blood pressure to decrease. So Valsalva and standing up commonly decrease your preload. Now, most murmurs like aortic stenosis, mitral regurg, aortic regurgitation, what do you think would happen to these murmurs when you decrease the preload? Do you think they would get more obvious or do you think they would get less obvious? They get less obvious, so they actually improve. And why would that be? I just think of it as there's less blood going through the heart and so there's less stress on those valves. However, hokum murmur actually worsens when preload is decreased. Can you think why that might be? So the increase in preload in the heart actually helps to expand the ventricle a little bit. Think of it as the blood is physically pushing the thickened interventricular septum to the side, so it's opening up that outlet and allowing the blood to flow out into the aorta. So with Valsalva or quickly standing up, when that blood pressure drops and the preload decreases, when there's less blood, the interventricular septum actually tends to collapse and obstruct the aortic outlet. I hope that makes sense to you. Um, If it doesn't, pause, maybe think about it, maybe rewind and listen to that part again. It's just that in hokum, there's a physical obstruction to the aortic outlet and more blood in the heart pushes that barrier to the side and improves the murmur. So when we decrease preload and there's less blood in the heart, the septum can take over that space and block the outlet. So that worsens the murmur, okay? So just remember that most murmurs improve with decreased preload. However, hokum worsens. Now let's think about increased afterload. First of all, what maneuver would increase afterload? So hand grip is a common maneuver that is thought of as increasing afterload. Just think of it as pressure. It's causing all your blood vessels to kind of tighten. How would increased afterload affect these murmurs? So the easiest one for me to conceptualize is the regurgitation murmurs, okay? You can imagine that the regurgitation murmurs actually get worse when there's increased afterload. Because as if the leaky valve wasn't enough of a force to pull blood backwards, now you have more afterload to make it even harder to push the blood forward. So, you know, you have the leaky valve working to push blood backward. You have the increased afterload working to push blood backward. And so mitral regurgitation and aortic regurgitation both get worse. Now, how about aortic stenosis? Do you think that murmur would get better or worse? Do you think it would get louder or softer? It gets softer, right? So it actually improves. And the afterload, the way it works, it actually further prevents blood from moving forward, right? So the murmur is caused by blood pushing through a stenotic valve. But 
with the afterload, there's less forward flow. And so the murmur gets softer and it gets better and it improves. It's more resistant pushing back. So there's less forward flow. And how about hokum? Same idea. There's more resistant pushing the blood back. So there's less forward flow. So the murmur actually gets better. Thinking about preload and afterload and the effect that it has on various murmurs can be very challenging, I think. But I think what's most important to realize is, first of all, think about where the blood has a tendency to move during the murmur and think about if the afterload or the preload change is making the natural movement during the murmur better or worse. And that can help you to figure out what's going to happen to that murmur. So I know it's really challenging to think about this. The best way to do it is to do practice questions, to think about it, to maybe talk about it with your friends or your family, whoever, just to try and explain it to them so that you understand it. But I hope that I've kind of explained the basic concept and from there you can build by practicing and doing practice questions and just trying to conceptualize it a little bit more. But good news, guys, we made it to the end, and that is all the content that I have to share with you. I'm not going to torture you today with a rapid-fire review, but I will repeat the key points that I want you to take away from this episode. So my first piece of advice is to tap the beat to figure out where systole and diastole are, and once you figure out S1 and S2, you can figure out which murmur, you know, where in the cycle the murmur is, you can figure out if it's an S3 sound or an S4 Um, orient yourself to S1 and S2 by tapping out the beat. For gallops, think about which is closer to S2. So S3 sounds a little bit more evenly spaced out, and then farther from S2 is S4, right? And S4 sounds a little bit more syncopated. Or you can use Kentucky and Tennessee, if that makes sense to you. For the murmurs, Mr. Ass and D arms. I'm telling you, those two mnemonics have helped me answer so many questions correctly on boards as well as on the wards, actually. And then buzzwords. So do you remember the main buzzword for aortic stenosis? Crescendo de crescendo. How about for regurgitation? High-pitched blowing murmur. And then for PDA? Continuous machine-like murmur. Those buzzwords show up again and again, so just, you know, learn them. If you can memorize them, it's good, but I really hate memorizing things because I feel like if I understand why, it's easier for me to remember. And then the final takeaway is that the murmur in hokum gets worse with decreased preload, unlike most other murmurs, because remember that blood pushes the thickened interventricular septum to the side. I know that was a lot of information, and if it's your first time going through this, it can be really hard to kind of wrap your brain around all of these concepts, but like everything, practice with these murmurs makes perfect, and you will improve and get so much better with practice. If you're ever hung up on a test question, try to break it down and understand what is happening in the heart. Think about where the blood is flowing, think about If there's a valve issue, which way the valve problem is making the blood go and, you know, just try to reason it out. And I think that if you understand these key concepts, 
on the day of the exam, you can figure out what's going on, even if you don't necessarily remember those buzzwords. Thank you so much, you guys, for tuning into this episode of Spoonful of Sugar. If you made it to the end, congratulations. Give yourself a pat on the back. If you liked this episode, please give us a rating or a review on the podcast platform of your choice. If you have questions, comments, concerns, if you noticed any errors in the episode, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post them under the link for this episode. If you want more regular updates about our content, such as new members joining our team, episodes that are coming out, do follow us on Instagram. And I'm also going to try to be a little more regular this year with posting practice questions and our stories and updating you guys with content that's coming. And as I said earlier, I'm always looking for more students and this year residents as well to join our team, record episodes, share the knowledge. If you're interested in this, the best way to contact us is through contact at spoonfulofsugar.org. I thank you again so much for your time and continued support. We all have our SOS moments in medical school, but that is exactly why I created Spoonful of Sugar, to help the medicine go down. Thank you and talk to you next time.